Happy Pride from Tomboy X. Celebrating pride and the queer community all year. Queer founded, queer run, and the makers of the original boxer briefs for women. Creating sustainable size and gender inclusive underwear, swimwear, and loungewear for all bodies so you feel comfortable in your own skin. Tomboy X just dropped their Pride 24 collection. Obsessively fit tested for all day comfort in sizes 3 extra small through 6X. Visit TomboyX.com. Hey, girlfriends, it's me, Carol Fisher, back with another season of the global number one podcast, The Girlfriends. Last time, we investigated the murder of Gail Katz. This time, we're uncovering the identity of the woman who was buried in Gail's grave for a decade before she disappeared. Join me and the rest of the club as we tell her story. Listen to season two of The Girlfriends, Our Lost Sister on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. Hey guys, this is Paris Hilton. Trapped in Treatment is back, and this season we're taking on WASP, the worldwide association of specialty programs and schools. They held us in dog cages. They starved us. They beat us. It was trying to brand us. So we were going to become the McDonald's of kid treatment. Join my host as they unravel the story of the largest and most shocking organization in the history of the troubled teen industry. Listen to season two of Trapped in Treatment on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. Afterlives is a production of iHeart Podcasts and the Outspoken Podcast Network in partnership with School of Humans. Just a heads up. The following episode discusses transphobia, racism, violence, and police violence. Take care while listening. Okay, I'm going to see me again. Let her finish. Let her finish. You'll never see me again. So no one's going to cry for you. Let's get into I have a photo of her on the side right there when you walk in. There's this one, and then I have more on the other side than I have. Melania has moved out of New York since her sister's death. But in her new home, Laylene's spirit is very much alive. I'm still working around with slowly putting all her pictures up. I mean, I do have a stack over there. When you walk in the front door... There's a shelf along the wall with a framed photo of Laylene on her birthday. A friend had just smashed a piece of cake into her face. It's a selfie of them together with Laylene covered in frosting. Near it, there's a glass trophy honoring Melania's work as an activist. When you turn the corner into the kitchen, you can't miss the life-size print of the Out magazine cover. That originally brought us together. Back when I first wrote about Laylene and her family. It's an image of Melania's mother, Aracelis, gazing up at a portrait of Laylene. All of these images allow them to stay connected to her memory. Every picture hurts to put up. Because it's not like I'm just putting a picture up of my sibling. I'm putting up a memory. Melania has three daughters. Her youngest, Juliet, is just under two years old. She never met her Aunt Laylene, but Melania gave her something to make sure that she hears her voice every day. It's a gift from a friend that she passed on to her daughter. We actually got a teddy bear with Laylene's voice in it that Juliet wakes up every morning, and that's the first thing she plays. So from my room, I hear Laylene singing out of a teddy bear. Melania brought the teddy bear out and showed me during our interview. This is the bear. It's brown and fuzzy with a little pink t-shirt. It's about the size of a cabbage patch kid and a bit beaten up. She squeezed it and Laylene's voice filled the room. That was her favorite song. You can hear my mom in the background. That's my daughter and my oldest. It, it used to sing the whole thing, but yeah, yeah. My daughter did a little number on this. Do you guys know that song? Yeah, it's like um, House September. Yes. So now I'm gonna cry for you. Yeah. yeah. 
So it, my daughter introduced her to that song, mm-hmm. and then it just became like Laylene's song. It's bittersweet to see the ways Laylene remains a vibrant presence in Melania's home. Grieving is one of the most challenging things we humans go through, and it's rarely linear. The circumstances surrounding Laylene's death made it especially hard to process. Unexpected, violent, very public. There would never be any explanation to what happened to my sister because it have never happened. I don't even feel like I even began to grieve because I still have to go through the acceptance part in order to grieve. Just three days after Laylene passed away, Melania spoke at her first rally, throwing herself into activism, doing interviews, and demanding answers. I started off as a warrior and as a soldier for my sister. It helped for a time. But eventually, she realized how badly she needed a break from the public eye. The reason why I took a step back was because I really wasn't seeing the change that I wanted. And I started seeing how I was declining as a human for myself and my children. I was losing myself. And part of that was not seeing real change. But I still feel to this day like no one is hearing me. There's no neat ending to Laylene's story. The battles in her name are still being fought to this day. And her legacy continues to unfurl. An afterlife that will have ripples for years to come. Grief can leave an almost impossible wound to heal. But it also can give way to new perspectives on life. All who carry the torch of Laylene's life today are unified by the belief that she mattered, that her story should continue to be told, and that they've been forever changed. I'm Raquel Willis, and this is Afterlives. Episode 7, Trans Futures. More than four years after Laylene's death, Melania's life has changed a lot. These days, she spends much of her time living a more private life, taking care of Juliet, her adopted daughter, who has loved that Laylene teddy bear to tatters. In a way, we feel like Laylene sent her to us. Because at that time when Juliet came about, it was really tough. I know it was because of the loss that we just had and everybody was just losing their mind. Nobody knew how to cope. And then, boom, here comes Juliet. And now the focus is Juliet, you know. So we always say that Laylene handpicked her and just used somebody else's body. And she was meant to be ours. Melania's two older daughters are growing up before her eyes, too. Her eldest, Aaliyah, went off to college this fall and wants to be a doctor. But as joyful as big milestones are, they can also be reminders of what's missing. That's kind of how Aaliyah's high school graduation felt. You know, seeing how my daughter broke down just the day before what is supposed to be the happiest day of her life. She did it. I mean, she got accepted in over 11 colleges and all scholarships. She should have been so happy. And she wasn't. We weren't. It felt empty because Lily was always like, you know, I'm going to be there and you're going to be 18. And all she keeps saying is like, God, I would have had so much fun with her. She just said I needed to be 18, you know. So she just thinks of all the fun that she could have had with her aunt and she just didn't even want to go. I had to drag her out the house to go to graduation and tell her, you know, your aunt wants you to be, she's going to be there. She She's always with you. She's going to be there. Melania's middle child, Isis, started middle school this year. She reminds me so much of her aunt. It's not even funny. Like, she's like tough like her. She's very, like, boisterous. This is who I am. 
you don't like it, like, you don't have to talk to me. My daughter is gay. And I think moving her here was one of the best decisions I made. Because everybody here is, like, so closed in. And, like, they love our children. You know, my daughter's schools, they have unisex bathrooms. Like, it's not girl-boy. Isis's best friend is a transgender girl who hangs out at their house all the time. Melania couldn't stop looking at her the first time they met because she sees Laylene in her, too. It's comforting for Melania to find signs of her sister wherever she goes. I still try to look for her and everything. And I mean everything, even if it's an animal <laughs> that comes up to me. I'm like, Laylene. Like, I remember after she passed away, I went to a park and there was like a whole bunch of little ducks that started following me. I felt like it was her. And then I just started just doing what Laylene does. I have two guinea pigs, two rabbits, a dog. Yeah, just feed the animals outside, which I got screamed at by the neighbors here because we had bears. It was all about healing and That's the aftermath, talking to animals, adopting animals, just being away for a while. This show is about how Laylene's story highlights systemic problems in our culture and politics. But Laylene, the person, remains at the heart of all of it. She was loving, she was caring. Here's what Melania wants you to know about her sister. She loved her family. She loved her nieces. She deserves to be here with us today. And I would give anything to have her back. We should all have a little Leelene in us. We should all dig for her little Leelene in us. The wild side, the funny side, the loving side, going above and beyond, even for those that you don't know. Leelene was just unique, and I don't think ever in a lifetime I will ever, ever come encounter with another human being like her. So what is Laylene's legacy in your eyes? I mean, leave it up to Laylene. It would just be unicorn and butterflies and rainbows everywhere. Just peace, humanity. I would want for her name to be brought up in history class. I will want her to always be remembered. I will want a world where transgender women are not afraid to live in, that they could be themselves and feel safe and feel protected and not go through what my sister went through, that it cost her life, discrimination cost her life. A world where solitary confinement also ends, what took my sister's life. In a perfect world, Rikers Island wouldn't exist. In my perfect world. The future of these movements, trans liberation, the fight to close Rikers, that's coming after the break. from Tomboy X, celebrating pride in the queer community all year. Queer founded, queer run, and the makers of the original boxer briefs for women, creating sustainable size and gender inclusive underwear, swimwear, and loungewear for all bodies so you feel comfortable in your own skin. Tomboy X just dropped their Pride 24 collection, obsessively fit tested for all day comfort in sizes three extra small through 6X. Visit TomboyX.com. Hey, girlfriends, it's me, Carol Fisher. I'm so excited to tell you about the brand new series of The Girlfriends. In season one, we told you about the murder of Gail Katz at the hands of my ex-boyfriend, Bob. At one point, a woman's torso washed up on Staten Island and was misidentified as Gail. She spent nine years in Gail's grave, and then she just disappeared. It's almost like it's become this moral obligation to find her. And that's what we're going to do. Find this missing girlfriend and tell her story. With the help of some of your favorite girlfriends from season one, like my producer, Anna. Oh, my God. My friend, Dr. Mindy Shapiro. Hi, it's Dr. Shapiro, and I'd like to speak with the deputy medical examiner. And, of course, Gail's sister, Elaine Katz. 
having no closure, it kills you. Join us as we try to solve a 35-year-old cold case. It's not going to be easy, but it's going to be one hell of a ride. <gasps> what? I can't believe this. Listen to season two of The Girlfriends, Our Lost Sister on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. Hey guys, this is Paris Hilton. Trapped in Treatment is back, and this season we're taking on Wasp. They held us in dog cages. They starved us. They beat us. They burned us and subject us to really horrible, uh, cruel and unusual punishment. After my personal experience at Provo Canyon School, I was shocked to learn that a man named Robert Litchfield, a man who got his start at the school that I went to, would go on to create a multi-million dollar empire. He was trying to brand us. So we were going to become the McDonald's in treatment. The Worldwide Association of Specialty Programs and Schools. They prey on, you know, a parent's really natural and beautiful love for their children in a really, really, unfortunately, effective way. At this time in my life now, if someone presented this program to me, and not just because I've already experienced it, sham, scam, beware. Listen to season two of Trapped in Treatment on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. Welcome back to Afterlives. Throughout this series, we've talked about the many ways reforms ignited by Laylene's death have fallen short. From failed attempts to eradicate solitary confinement to the unraveling of the LGBTQ plus affairs unit. But so many people are still showing up and still fighting for change. When it comes to Rikers, Coalitions argue that there's only one true answer to its problems. Shut it down. My name is Darren Mack. I go by he and pronouns. Darren is a leader in the campaign to close Rikers. He's the co-director of Freedom Agenda. Which is a member-led grassroots organization dedicated to organizing people to achieve decarceration and system transformation. Many members of Freedom Agenda have been incarcerated at Rikers, and some have lost loved ones there. How are you today, Darren? I'm coming along, same fight, different round. That's a good way to put it. Yeah, unfortunately, this week, another person lost their life on Rikers Island, so it's just been a lot. It's still painful and... Mm-hmm. And trans community, whenever we lose someone, it's triggering. Mm -hmm. Darren's relationship to his organizing work is rooted in personal experience. I'm a native New Yorker, Brooklynite, born and sort of raised in the old Bushwick, Bed-Stuy area. I say born and somewhat raised because at the age of 17, I was incarcerated and spent 19 months on Rikers Island when the population was over 20,000 people detained there. This was at the age of 17. And then I ultimately spent the next 19 and a half years throughout the New York State prison system. Darren was at Rikers in the early 90s. While he was in jail, he recognized his life was part of a larger story, a story of the injustices that the carceral system is built on. I got a letter from one of my cousins, and it had a newspaper article cut out that spoke about George Stinney Jr., a distant relative of mine. George Stinney Jr., he was falsely accused of killing two young white girls in South Carolina. In less than 83 days, he was arrested, convicted by all-white male jury, and sentenced to death by the electric chair. George was 14 years old. He was the youngest person to get the electric chair in the U.S. Learning about that story, I just reflected, like, something is wrong with the system. Darren kept reading more about the case and about U.S. history more broadly. He even got a bachelor's degree in history as a part of the Bard College Prison Initiative, 
Over time, he gained a larger context on incarceration and how it ties to our country's past. This informs his work today. His role as an organizer in the Clothes Rikers campaign is part of a larger project, Abolition. Can you define abolition for our listeners? That's a really great question because, like in my experience, if you would ask 10 people who identified abolitionists, sometimes I would get like nine to 10 different answers. If I ask one person, they might say closing jails and prison. They might even include immigration detention centers. And then they'll stop there. Then I might ask another person, they might add to that and say police. Then I might ask another person, they might add to all of that by adding on the state or capitalism. It's an umbrella term. To me, it's helpful for thinking bigger. Reforming a jail like Rikers is one thing, but an abolitionist lens asks us to imagine a world where a jail like Rikers doesn't exist to begin with. What would it take to build a system that centers harm reduction and public resources instead of punishment as a baseline? We've seen the importance of that through Laylene's story, how every step of her experience in the carceral system involves some kind of penalty for simply existing in a world that limited the way she could have existed. Many prison abolitionists today, like Darren, are focused on what's called decarceration, shrinking the number of people in prisons and jails. And in the years since Darren was on Rikers, the average daily population has declined by a lot. It's nearly 70% smaller today compared to the early 90s, when Darren was one of 20,000 inmates. Unfortunately, the horrible conditions has exacerbated. Last year, 2022, one of the deadliest years in the history of the New York Department of Corrections. Last year, 19 people died in New York City jails, according to Vera Institute. Almost all of those were Rikers inmates. Over this series, we've talked a lot about the harms caused by Rikers specifically. And that's not controversial. Politicians and even current employees talk openly about how bad things are at Rikers. Activists and public officials have spent decades trying to improve the jail's conditions with little success. When Rikers was at its peak population in the 80s and 90s, the jail was notoriously violent. Sometimes there were more than 1,000 slashings and stabbings a year. Headlines like Inside Rikers Island, A Bloody Struggle for Control, were the norm. Today, the population is a fraction of what it once was. And officers are no longer outnumbered by inmates. But the rates of violence and death are higher than when the population was at its peak. In 2015, the city even brought in a highly paid expert to manage violence. But under his watch, fights and assaults have more than doubled. All this has led many to believe the gels just can't be fixed. Good afternoon, everyone. Back in 2017, Mayor Bill de Blasio announced the city's intent to close Rikers completely. I'm here to make what is really a historic announcement. New York City will close the Rikers Island jail facility. It will take many years. It will take many tough decisions along the way. But it will happen. What this would look like exactly took some time to take shape. But a plan emerged to close Rikers by 2027 and replace it with four smaller jails. Still, many people don't believe building new jails is a suitable solution, even if the overall jail population in the city decreases. Skeptics believe these plans are like Band-Aids on a gaping wound. 
Current New York City Mayor Eric Adams inherited the plan to close Rikers from de Blasio and committed to seeing it through during his campaign. So far, his administration's policies haven't reflected that. For example, the Rikers Island population will need to be cut nearly in half to fit in the new constellation of smaller jails. Officials say we can expect to see the population rise. Justice advocates say if we're going to keep people out of jail, we need to reallocate funds and invest in support for mental health care, housing, health services, and education. The front-end costs for prevention are far less than incarceration. I sometimes imagine an alternate reality where Leilene could have benefited from social safety nets like these. Your taxpayer dollars is costing you over half a million dollars to keep one person on records out for a year. Over half a million dollars a year. Do you think that's the best use of it? People are suffering and people are dying. The city's budget negotiations were tense in 2023. Many New Yorkers stood up against proposed cuts to schools, libraries, programming for incarcerated people, housing services, and more. We heard from people at a rally in May called Care Not Criminalization. It sought to raise awareness about the imbalance in city resources. Did you know that we spend 300% more on incarcerated people than L.A. and Chicago? Is that right? No! Is that right? No! Rally goers marched from Manhattan's Foley Square to City Hall Park. We met some of the folks who attended, like Daona She. Rikers Island is a failure, a complete failure. Men are going there who are pretrial detainees, and they're losing their life. Institutions are supposed to save us, right? And it's not doing its purported job. And when somebody is not doing their job, what do we normally do? We normally terminate them or get rid of them. Diona was at Rikers in 1985. I have personal experience. I served 28 years in New York State Prison. I believe I did approximately 16 months on Rikers Island. It was a hellhole back then, and it's a hellhole now. Absolutely nothing has changed. It is not only detrimental and harmful to people who go and reside there, but for people who work there. The place is full of trauma, irregardless of where you stand. We wanted to know what the rallying cries of care, not criminalization, meant to him. We all have issues, right? So a person who has a substance abuse issue, he should not be locked away in a cell somewhere. We should be giving him treatment. It's extremely important because the reality is 99.9% of the men are going to return to our community. 99.9% of the women are going to return to the community. So how would you want them to return? You want them healthy and whole? Or you want them hurt and harmed? No, you want them healthy. And that's what we're setting out to do. We heard that loud and clear. We demand care, not cuts. Care, not cuts. Care, not cuts. While there have been pushes to close Rikers in the past, Darren says the coalition formed in 2016 has been especially effective because it's truly grassroots. It's been a challenge, but I'm optimistic because we've been battle-tested. One of our members, Anna, she's been in this campaign from the beginning. Her son was on Rikers Island for over five years. And there's people like her, people like Tamara Carter, the mother of Brandon Rodriguez, who lost his life on Rikers Island. They are in his fight to the end. We're going to bring this to the finish line. Their work is cut out for them. Rikers is getting harder to monitor under the Adams administration. This year, the Department of Corrections stopped informing the press of deaths in their custody. They've also prevented the jail's oversight agency from watching real-time video surveillance from inside Rikers. And Mayor Adams has been throwing cold water on the plans to close the complex on schedule. But Darren is driven. It's deaths like Leilene's that motivate him to stick with his work. Any death always brings a lot of pain because I know there's a family connected to that person that's suffering right now. 
I lost a brother in the state prison system at a young age. And I remember that vividly because I never saw my mother cry before. So anytime a death happens, I know that a family is suffering. A family is in pain. It's sad, but it also makes me angry as well that this system continues to exist that's taking the lives of black and brown New Yorkers and the most vulnerable and marginalized people in our community. Closing Rikers would save lives. It would be a breakthrough for the city and set an example for abolitionist organizing across the country and around the world. It would also show families like Leilene's that the legacies of their loved ones matter. We'll be right back. Happy Pride from Tomboy X. We just dropped our Pride 24 collection. Queer founded, queer run, and creating size and gender inclusive underwear, swimwear, and loungewear for all bodies. So you feel comfortable in your own skin. Visit TomboyX.com to shop. Hey, girlfriends, it's me, Carol Fisher. I'm so excited to tell you about the brand new series of The Girlfriends. In season one, we told you about the murder of Gail Katz at the hands of my ex-boyfriend, Bob. At one point, a woman's torso washed up on Staten Island and was misidentified as Gail. She spent nine years in Gail's grave, and then she just disappeared. It's almost like it's become this moral obligation to find her. And that's what we're going to do. Find this missing girlfriend and tell her story. With the help of some of your favorite girlfriends from season one, like my producer, Anna. Oh, my God. My friend, Dr. Mindy Shapiro. Hi, it's Dr. Shapiro, and I'd like to speak with the deputy medical examiner. And of course, Gail's sister, Elaine Katz. Having no closure, it kills you. Join us as we try to solve a 35-year-old cold case. It's not going to be easy, but it's going to be one hell of a ride. (gasps) What? I can't believe this. Listen to season two of The Girlfriends, Our Lost Sister, on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. Hey guys, this is Paris Hilton. Trapped in Treatment is back, and this season we're taking on Wasp. They held us in dog cages. They starved us. They beat us. They burned us and subject us to really horrible... Uh, cruel and unusual punishment. After my personal experience at Provo Canyon School, I was shocked to learn that a man named Robert Litchfield, a man who got his start at the school that I went to, would go on to create a multi-million dollar empire. He was trying to brand us. So we were going to become the McDonald's in treatment. The Worldwide Association of Specialty Programs and Schools. They prey on you know, a parent's really natural and beautiful love for their children in a really, really, unfortunately, effective way. At this time in my life now, if someone presented this program to me, and not just because I've already experienced it, sham, scam, beware. Listen to season two of Trapped in Treatment on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. We're back with Afterlives. The battle to close Rikers is taking place in New York City. But across the country, people are trying to push the needle on other issues that also matter to Laylene's life and death. One of the biggest struggles we're seeing play out surrounds anti-LGBTQ plus legislation. Several Republican-led states are considering legislation that would ban drag shows in public. These bills target health care, bathroom access, the ability for trans kids to play sports, ID laws, and same-sex marriage. It also makes seeking gender-affirming care a condition for child protective services to take a minor away from their parents. Now, state legislatures are coming for adult health care, too. Okay, so we are here. I wanted to hear from someone who's been on the ground in that fight. And I knew the perfect person to call. And just briefly explain what your current job is. 
I am Deputy Director for Trans Justice with the National Office of the ACLU. This is Chase Strangio. I use he, him, or they, them pronouns. From the American Civil Liberties Union. And I work across the country litigating trans justice-related cases and working in state legislatures to lobby against largely anti-trans bills and have been at the ACLU for a little over 10 years. A minute, a hot minute. A minute. Chase's work is needed now more than ever. In 2019, the year Laylene died, there were 19 bills specifically targeting trans people introduced in state legislatures. The following year, that number more than tripled. And by 2021, it doubled again. Every year since Laylene's passing, the number of bills breaks the previous year's record. At the time I'm recording this, the ACLU is tracking over 500 anti-LGBTQ bills across the country. And that number keeps going up. Can you help people understand what's happening without overwhelming them? I don't know. I mean, I think it is incredibly overwhelming and it's hard not to be because that is, in fact, the goal is for us to be inundated and overwhelmed and limited in our ability to push back. It's difficult to capture just how disorienting this barrage of hate can be. From the legislation to political rhetoric to mountains of misinformation. But the majority of people in the U.S., support trans rights. That's according to a poll conducted by PBS, NPR, and Maris. I'd like to think stories like Laylene's helped move the needle on acceptance and awareness. And if you look under the hood at the source of this onslaught of bills, there's a small group of lobbyists with outsized political power. However... As Republicans continue to push anti-trans legislation as part of their agenda, public acceptance is growing. If we take a step back and try to boil down what's going on, I think we're living through a moment where political forces are designed to limit access to what we learn, limit ability to vote, and limit access to bodily autonomy and control. Conservative lawmakers are obsessed with trying to roll back civil rights for groups on the margins. Along with abortion bans and voter suppression, bills are being passed that prevent trans people from accessing health care or updating identification documents. And the pilot legislation for all this hate, the bathroom bills, are simply another attempt to divorce trans people from public life. The arguments that the states are making in defense of their laws is that they have an interest in stopping youth from becoming trans adults. They have an interest, in essence, in eradicating transness. Their notion of transness is that it is inherently fixable, that you can push someone to become non-trans by intervening at a younger age, and that being a trans adult is a bad outcome that the state has an interest in preventing. This is troubling for a lot of reasons. Look, I'm solidly millennial, so you can bet it was already difficult being any kind of queer when I was growing up in the 90s and early 2000s. After waves of visibility, marriage equality, increased social acceptance, the hope was that the next generations would have it infinitely easier. But unfortunately, these policies curb progress, putting more targets on all of our backs. Conservatives who argue that children shouldn't grow up to be trans, who debate the validity of trans people in general, only make it harder for us to live our lives on our own terms. That is what they are going into court to argue, that trans people are miserable, that they are not real, and that the state has an interest in stopping a trans youth from turning into a trans adult. I don't know what else that is, if not eliminationist project, if not a genocidal imperative on some level. Our community has been raising alarms about this, but more and more of this discourse is finding its way onto popular platforms. In March of this year, on the main stage at CPAC, the Conservative Political Action Conference, trans people were consistently mocked and derided in speeches and panel discussions. 
far-right political commentator Michael Knowles went as far as saying that transgenderism must be eradicated from public life entirely. One of the strategies to try to attack and ultimately eliminate trans people is to posit us as an ideology, not as human beings. Amid criticism of Noel's remarks, he went on social media to say he was attacking transgenderism, the ideology, not actual people. But it's BS. The point is to dehumanize us. Trans people are people. We are not ideas to be debated. We deserve for our entire humanity to be seen. Leilene deserved for her entire humanity to be seen. But time and time again, people turned her away, denied her safety and medicine and care, and eventually let her die. A world with more stories that end like Leilene's is a world I'm not willing to accept. We are fighting back in federal court and the judges aren't buying it. The judges are ruling for us. They're hearing the evidence and saying there is nothing to be debated here. This is a preposterous notion that there are two sides to a conversation of transness. I realized I talked about trans futures and visions for liberation in many of the interviews I did for this show. And no matter how hard our conversations were, this was always such a powerful idea to conclude with. I'd like to leave you with a look at the road ahead from some of the incredible and brilliant trans folks you've heard from throughout our season. Like Trayvell Anderson, whose work as an author and journalist is critical to telling a more complete story about trans lives. That's what your work speaks to. It's like, I'm going to keep doing me. I'm going to keep doing this work. Listen, and y'all will catch up one day. We got to. <laughs> and they have no choice but to catch up. Okay, right? So yeah. just go ahead and get on the train now. All right. It'll be easier <laughs> for all of us. Okay. And and when 80-year-old Trayvell is you know, <laughs> is around. I, I think you're going to see it. I think you will be pleasantly surprised. <laughs> I'll be the old crotchety person back in my day. <laughs> <laughs> I can't, actually can't wait. Or Tabitha Gonzalez, who reminds us that everyone has a role in making progress. She's chosen to reform the system from the inside as a human rights specialist for the city of New York. To be a person now working in the same city that kept me prisoner, that's what fuels my advocacy because I know the harm that my people face in these industrial complexes. Mm-hmm. While some people will look from a lens of scarcity, there's so much to do and we all can't be doing the same things. We have to figure it out. Yeah. How to amplify, how to move the needle forward. If I'm in commissions and I'm in the city, my sister's in the state, Queen Jean's in the streets, Lala's in the courts, mm-hmm. everybody got to take their position. We all have something to do. Kristen Lavelle, who brings a powerful personal perspective to her work as a filmmaker. Historically, we have always been here and trans, this is not this new thing. Some people are confused to think that this is just something that happened within the past few years and everybody's running to take hormones because they see that trans people are on television or something. So now there's a takeover and everybody's scared. (laughs) So it's important to tell these stories to show that we have history, that these things have been going on systematically for a very long time. We're fucking tired of it. We just want to live our lives. We don't want to be sitting here over-explaining ourselves to you over and over again. Just let me be. I want to work. I want to have a home. I want to drive a car. I want to be happy, too. And Cecilia Gentili, a friend, an icon, and an elder. And what is the trans future you dream of? I dream of a future of trans people being safe. I dream of a future where trans people may not be fully understood. And that is fine. 
I want people to say like, I don't understand your transness, but I respect it. And I encourage you to live it to the fullest and to live happily. I cannot lose faith in humanity because otherwise it would be nothing for me to live for. Uh-huh. I live in one of the most conservative parts of Brooklyn. I'm two blocks on the water. It's just beautiful, but it's very conservative, right? So uh-huh. I know that it's people who are transphobic in my blog. And I always think of like, I go to a supermarket and I, I touch my fruits and I smell my fruits and things like that. And I'm like, I'm going to leave this avocado here. And I just wish that someone who is transphobic comes and pick it and make a nice guacamole so they could see that we share an avocado experience and that nothing happened to them. And that me touching the avocado didn't make it worse or better. Mm. It kept it a fucking avocado. So with that, what I'm trying to symbolize always is like my existence really doesn't affect anybody. I love it. And now I want an avocado. Oh, God. (laughs) Yes. I know what Cecilia is saying, and it's moving. But what I'll add is that her existence, it does have an effect. And that's true of every amazing trans person we've heard from here. By being themselves, they are setting an example for other trans people. And Cecilia is showing us that we all deserve to be trans elders, that we can make change in the world around us, and we can live without sacrificing our humanity. And while Cecilia has changed the lives of so many individuals, she admits she can't reach them all. But then I'm like, you know, I can do this with everyone. That's why policy is great, right? Because you can make changes that are much more macro instead of going one by one person. Laylene's story has never ventured far from my heart. In fact, as I was working on my recently published memoir, The Risk It Takes to Bloom, on life and liberation, I decided to write a letter to Laylene. I wanted to tell her all of the things that flew through my mind as I learned her story. I'll leave you with some of those words. Dear Laylene, I learned your story before I knew your name. A familiar feeling of depletion washed over me as I absorbed your demise. Within days, a micro-movement, hundreds deep, coalesced for a rally. Some organizers asked me to speak. Somehow, on the spot, I broke through my spirit's fatigue. I said, I think at this moment, I can't be sad anymore. I'm saddened in an instant, and then I'm quickly fucking angry. Fuck the respectability and the assimilation. We are who we are. We deserve to be here. And we are the future. Literally. I thought of how my sisters and siblings become martyrs, and how that characterization strips away a level of your humanity. So often, the names trickle into a deluge as Trans Day of Remembrance approaches, and all that beauty, glory, and nuance is subsumed by tragedy. That couldn't happen again. Perhaps no story had been as transformative for me as yours. Those shifts seem to be happening The murders within our community haven't let up since your death. Trust that there are folks continuously fighting to ensure that what happened to you doesn't happen again. I know words in a glossy magazine or a podcast series can't bring you back or serve as an ultimate balm for the people wounded by your death. Still, 
I hope you accept it as an offering and a catalyst to change things for future generations. In liberation, Raquel. Thank you so much for listening to Afterlives. This episode concludes our first season. But don't worry, we have a few bonus interviews coming your way. You can find this episode and future ones on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. Please leave us a rating and review to let us know what you think. Afterlives is a production of iHeart Podcasts and the Outspoken Podcast Network in partnership with School of Humans. I'm your host and creator, Raquel Willis. Dylan Hoyer is our senior producer and script writer. Our associate producer is Joey Pat. Sound design and engineering by Daisy Makes Radio Productions with additional support from Jess Kreinchich. Story editing by Aaron Edwards and Julia Ferlon. Fact-checking by Savannah Hugely. Our show art is by Makai Baldwin. Score composed by Wazi Murray. Our production manager is Daisy Church. Executive producers include me, Raquel Willis, and Jay Brunson from the Outspoken Podcast Network. Michael Alder June and Noel Brown from iHeart Podcasts. Virginia Prescott, Brandon Barr, and Elsie Crowley from School of Humans and The Cats Company. School of Humans. Psst, there's a shortcut to platinum status at Shell to saving 10 cents per gallon on every fill every day. Just fill up six times with Shell V-Power Nitro Plus Premium Gasoline, and it's yours. Plus, you'll rejuvenate your engine. Get ready to level up performance, rewards, and savings. With continuous use in gasoline direct injection engine fuel injectors, Platinum Status is earned with 12 fill-ups over three months, 10-gallon minimum per fill-up at participating Shell locations. Terms apply. Visit fuelrewards.com status. Happy Pride from Tomboy X. We just dropped our Pride 24 collection. Queer founded, queer run, and creating size and gender inclusive underwear, swimwear, and loungewear for all bodies. So you feel comfortable in your own skin. Visit TomboyX.com to shop. Hey girlfriends, it's me, Carol Fisher, back with another season of the global number one podcast, The Girlfriends. Last time we investigated the murder of Gail Katz. This time, we're uncovering the identity of the woman who was buried in Gail's grave for a decade before she disappeared. Join me and the rest of the club as we tell her story. Listen to season two of The Girlfriends, Our Lost Sister on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts.